so many books, so little time. If you've ever said, I really want to read the Bible, I just can't fit it all in. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. This is the Bible Book Club. We'll read it to you and help you make sense of the most important book you'll ever read. Did we tell you how interesting the Bible is? It's a soap opera. Oh, well, we have another whopper for you today. But first, I'm going to catch you up on chapters 36 and 37. So Esau and his family tree were outlined in what I would say is way too much detail. And we learned that while Joseph is a patriarch, his line will not produce the air. Then we got into Joseph's relationship, a complicated one at that, with his brother, specifically the contentious coat that led to envy and spiraled out of control. His brothers also, well, they tried to kill him. (laughs) It was that. And then only two brothers, Reuben and Judah, out of 10 had any qualms about it, which is really Doesn't say much for them. (laughs) Sad. And ultimately, Joseph is spared, though. And just wait till you see why. Because they settled for selling him into slavery instead of killing him. Hallelujah for that. Okay, so here's the setup. We're going to cover two chapters today, 38 and 39. And we have two totally separate stories. However, there are, of course, parallels. There always are. There are two men and two women. This is the story, chapter 38, of Judah and Tamar. And 39, the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Both of these men are massive to the mission of the Bible. Joseph is chosen by God to save his people, the Israelites, and Judah is chosen by God to produce the Savior to save the world. Both women are wily and want the same thing, sex. Told you. One for pleasure and one for procreation. First, let's cover the story of Judah and Tamar, wily woman number one, and she is the hero of this story. Chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth still to another son named Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. It sounds really harsh, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so we put him to death, but get used to it because a lot more coming up about that in Kings. But for today, Judah, 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 what are you doing? (laughs) I have read all the commentaries and I can only guess what was going on in his head. Here's what I think. So Kazib is southwest of Jerusalem and northwest of Hebron. He hasn't gone too far. Certainly not to a bad place like Egypt. He's still in Canaan, but he is leaving at a really bad time. His father is grieving the death of Joseph. Why would Judah go now? Was this a guilt thing? Was witnessing, watching his father falsely grieve the death of a son who wasn't dead? Too unbearable to watch? With his three older brothers, Simeon and Levi, killers of newly circumcised men, and Reuben slept with his father's wife, disqualified for birthright and blessing status, Judah is next in line to inherit everything. 
Was he, was that just too much pressure for him? Was he wrestling with God over his guilt as the next leader now turned liar? Or was he just running from the conviction that he should honor his father with the truth? I don't know. But in any case, he leaves. And that is a mistake. Then he marries because maybe he got lonely in his new city. I mean, that's to be expected when you're used to 11 brothers around. However, he marries outside the clan, a Canaanite woman. Bigger mistake. He should have heard about this from his dad. His uncle Esau did the same thing. He married women outside the faith and it was a big mistake. So it seems to me Judah is either not very smart like Esau or he's purposely trying to take himself out of the running for the promises of God. Like, okay, if I marry women outside the faith, I'm going to be like Esau and it's going to go to somebody else. The burden of carrying this family line is going to go to somebody else. So then he has three boys, and of course, all of them are influenced by this Canaanite wife, and he marries the oldest to another Canaanite woman, Tamar. Big mistake. Well, maybe not. However, his oldest son is so wicked, God removes him from the picture, kills him. Verse 8, then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as brother-in-law to raise up an offspring of your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep them from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Oh yeah, did we also tell you there was other really weird things in the Bible? Like I know, spilling TMI, semen. TMI, too much information, okay. I know. But let me explain this. Just wait till we finish this episode. <laughs> so this was called Levirate marriage. And it was actually a law. Let me explain it. What? Because it sounds really weird to us, you know, that a brother should marry his brother's wife after he dies. But what Judah is asking his son to do was a normal practice. Like I said, it was called Levirate marriage. And a Levirate marriage was a practice in the ancient Near East um, that was later documented in Deuteronomy 25 as part of the Mosaic law. Basically, it meant that if a man died before he had had a child, an heir, his brother had to marry his wife and their first child would carry on the first dead brother's name and place in the lineage. If there was no brother, and we're going to get to this sick fact, the father should marry his son's wife. Who was probably even less than half his age. I don't know. You never know in those days because they started having kids early. But ew, in any case, ew, (laughs) ew, ew, ew. In this case, Onan was up next. And that's why Judas tells him to, to sleep with her. But Onan didn't want the inheritance to pass to Tamar's children and being credited to his brother. He knew if Tamar didn't have children, he would get the inheritance and it would go to his sons. So he uses Tamar sexually, but he avoids getting her pregnant. Hence the detail we got there. Also not good. Not good. No. God didn't like this. And so he kills him. (laughs) Verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought... He may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend named Hira the Aludamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, 
she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enniam, which is on the road to Timonah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. Okay, so lots of little hints there about what's going on behind the scenes. Judah is trying to get rid of Tamar. He sends her to live with her father. He's got one son left, Shelah, and he's thinking in his head, she is cursed and there is no way I'm giving her to my third son because he's going to die too. Judah has absolutely no intention of marrying her to Shelah and he's lying to her. He just wants to be rid of her. And then this Leviric law that he's under. He's blind to the fact that his sons died because of their own sin and not because of Tamar's. So he commits another sin on top of that? Lying? Well, you know, Judah's not where we want him to be right now is the future of this <laughs> nation. God's gonna he's going to get there. <laughs> okay. But right now he's in a bad place. Remember, he's kind of run away from the family mm. and he's living in the land of heathens. He's not following God right now. Just like some of his ancestors before. Correct. 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 So the cool thing to see is that Tamar is not having it. She is a patient woman. She's been living with her dad, waiting for Sheila. But Sheila is by now grown up and being a wily woman, she's going to get what she wants. And so this, she covers herself with a veil. That was not the practice of prostitutes in those days. However, it is um, assumed that this place she goes to sit at on the road is where the prostitutes hung out. Now, there is lots of juicy details about prostitutes in those days and what possibly could have happened and what she was doing. There are actually three different kinds of prostitutes that they think lived in those days. One was a kind of prostitute fertility for fertility that was allowed to help women who couldn't get pregnant. No, 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 no. This is sheep shearing time, apparently. And sometimes these women would, you know, when they was time to shear the sheep and I I could go down. Yeah, we're not going to go there. It's TMI again, TMI. However, you read a lot of commentaries. I I read a lot of commentaries. However, for some reason, he's going to think she's a prostitute. It's where she's sitting. It's what she's doing. It's not the veil because prostitutes did not wear veils. It's the time of year. It was sheep shearing time. Hey, he's hanging out with a friend. And did you catch that little juicy bit of gossip? His wife is dead. He's single. And he thinks she's a prostitute. Judah's single right now. So you got to catch all those little tidbits and just those few little verses there. He's single. Sheila's grown. She hears that he's coming to town for the sheep shearing thing. And she's like, I'm going to go. Go check this out because it's time for me to get married a bit again. My point is she is on it. She's patient. What is it that this wily woman wants? Let's find out. Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face, not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law. Okay, it's getting really weird. Okay, I think they all had bad eyesight back then because, you know, Isaac didn't recognize, <laughs> didn't recognize you didn't know, Jacob just like Esau. So I think no glasses back then. So, like hey. sleeping with Leah yeah, exactly. instead of Rachel. <laughs> exactly. Mean, that was Jacob. They I all mean, had bad eyes. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, not realizing that yeah. he, she's his daughter-in-law. He went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. 
Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Eludamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. When Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become the laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. (laughs) Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't have given her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. Whoa. I know. So I left with the, before you started this, I said, what does Tamar want? Tamar want what Judah is neglecting to be a part of God's plan for Israel. Judah has run away for it. And yet Tamar hungers for it. Does she know? So she was married to his son. She must have heard. Similarly to we're going to get there, Ruth and Naomi Mm -hmm. hungered for what Naomi taught her. Judah seems to have forgotten about God. He is breaking all kinds of laws. Marrying Canaanite women, raising sons who don't honor God, sleeping with prostitutes. And in my opinion only, it is unlikely this was a one-time deal. He Mm -hmm. seems to know what he is doing. Not honoring his Well, approaching prostitutes. It doesn't seem like it was a first time thing for him. Anyway, that's my opinion. And finally, withholding Sheila and Mm -hmm. breaking the Leviret law. He's walking away from God. Tamar, on the other hand, wants so badly to be a part of God's family that she goes around the law by pretending to be a prostitute to obey the Leviret law and become a part of God's plan. Tamar, the Canaanite, in the end, is declared by Judah himself as the righteous one. And I love this about Judah. When he is hit right in the middle of the face with his sin, he admits it. He does not. He asks for her to be burned. Yeah. And yet when she brings these things forth, which is in those days, the sin, you know, this cord and this thing that she held. It would have only it was been like his. Your it driver's license. have only been his. Yeah. yeah. It, it was like his driver's license. And so Tamar wins for wanting the right thing, even if she accomplished it the wrong way because God looks at the heart. She's just like Jacob. Jacob wanted it. Esau did not. Jacob and Rebecca went about it the wrong way, but God honored that because at least they wanted it. Oh yeah, because it certainly looks like she's going about this the wrong way because until you brought that out, I'm thinking that woman is manipulative. 
She is, but she wants it in her heart. And God can work with people who have a heart for him. What he can't work with is people who don't care. Yeah. And so you can, you can teach somebody to do it the right way, but if they don't love you, they don't love you. She loves God. Tamar wants God. She wants to be a part of what she's heard of this family. She wants to be in that promise somewhere. And God loves this heart of hers that seeks him. Oh, I love Tamar now. I know it, don't you? I love her. Okay. I'm going to go a little off track here, but this is a Bible bender to me and I may put this in the notes. It's a study I've done before. My favorite part of this story is where Tamar ends up in his story. Play on word right there. History, his story. History is God's story. It's his story, which includes unloved, lonely, obscure, even ill-treated people. So if you feel unloved, lonely, obscure, ill-treated, then listen up because I don't know what Susan's about to say, but I'm pretty sure it's yeah, going to be because it's a Bible bender for me. So I studied the women of the Bible and I'm going to talk about where Tamar falls in this. The first type of woman we read about in this, a little bit was Hagar, but I'm going to skip her because she's not, she wasn't totally in the blessing. Leah was a first. And yet for all her sorrow, she learned to love the Lord. God blessed her as the mother of Judah from whom the nation will grow and the Messiah will come. So she was kind of the first unloved, lonely, obscure, ill-treated woman, you know. Tamar is our second. Poor thing. This family is so mean to her. It said right there, you finish with, and he never slept with her again. He never touches her again. And it doesn't appear that he ever marries her. Yet hundreds of years later, her passion for the Lord and righteousness is so renowned that the apostle Matthew remembers her and listed Tamar in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1. She is the first of only five women to be listed. The five are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. No, Sarah, no, Rebecca, none of them. Rahab, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Let me tell you about these five. Here's another cool fact. Four of the five were outsiders, not even a part of the Jewish faith, and had very shadowy pasts. Three of the five, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba, were adulterers or prostitutes. Four of the five, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, were not even Jewish. They were grafted in because of their heart, their faith and love for God. The point is, it is clear from analysis of the people God uses for good that their past does not predict their future. And neither does yours. Exactly. There is hope. Love, Tamar. Me too. Verse 27. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was named Zira. Okay, that sounds really confusing, I know, but the whole point they're making here is this is another example of a younger son triumphing over the older. Perez is going to be the man who carries the line of Christ, not the one who got put his little hand out. <laughs> because it's like in the womb, the one put his hand out, the other said, oh, no, no you don't. I'm happening. coming out first. And then Perez fought for it. I think that's there for a little reason. There, it's kind of an odd insertion right here, but the 
commentaries all say, and I kind of agree, it's it's kind of going to tie in with our next story because Joseph, the younger son to Judah, is about to have a breakout moment too, triumphing over his older brother. He's going to have just a straight up heart for God that Judah is going to have to develop. And it's demonstrating that he deserved that contentious coat his father gave him. His integrity and behavior are a star- stark contrast to what Judah's should have been. Well, it also kind of reminds me of Esau when, wasn't there some story where he Oh reached, no, Esau was born first, yeah. but, but God chose Jacob. And Jacob had yes, reached out exactly. of the womb. It's exactly. the same thing happened again. All right. Our second story in this episode is of the second couple, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, wily woman number two, who is not the heroine. In this story, the hero role goes to Joseph, wily woman number two. In chapter 39, when we left Joseph in 37, he had been betrayed by his brothers and robbed of his home, family, and future. He is headed to Egypt as a slave. Chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had given him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. I'm kind of glad that Joseph, even though he is a slave, has broken free from his brothers because in this one paragraph in the Bible, it is clear that Joseph is God's chosen man. Until now, we have only seen Joseph through the lens of his family. His father thinks the best of him and his brothers think the worst. It is time for another opinion. And in this chapter, we get the only opinion that really counts, and it's God's. And God sees his heart and he sees Joseph's faith. So the Lord caused Joseph to prosper. In our opening paragraph, we read, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord gave him success. The Lord blessed the household because of Joseph. And the blessing of the Lord was on everything because of Joseph. It's like a coming of age story. Oh my gosh. The result of Joseph's faith was that God blessed him. And the result of that blessing was that Joseph found favor. Joseph found favor with Potiphar. And Potiphar saw Joseph as a means to benefit himself. And it's okay to find favor with people who don't know God because they think it's benefiting them. them. You can influence them. Now, I want to kind of segue and talk about finding favor because this has been another huge study of mine over the years. I wish I had time to expound on all the examples in the Bible of who and how one finds favor. But just for a little sampling, we've already read in Genesis 6, 8 that Noah found favor. We know that Moses, Esther, and Mary all find favor favor with the Lord. But the point is that finding favor should be a personal goal of ours. It is the result of our obeying the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. Because when we love the Lord with all our heart, we will find favor with him and others. If our example is Christ, then we just need to read Luke 2.52, which says, and 
Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Therefore, if you grow in wisdom and in stature, you're going to find favor with God and with man. And that's exactly what happened with Joseph. Joseph, he grew in wisdom. He grew up in age and stature and he found favor with God. And then he found favor with Potiphar. And we're going to find in the next few verses, in the next few chapters, he's going to find favor with all kinds of people. That is an equation for a Joseph type testimony. If you want to have a testimony at the end of your life like Joseph's, you just need to follow that simple equation. It's just that clear. Simple, yet not. Because it (laughs) isn't the simplest thing to do, especially if you haven't been following that path for your life. However, Susan has a path. It's a printable that we've talked about many times on here. And if you get on that path, you can get to a place where you can find favor with God. And we're going to see how Joseph does it in these next verses. Oh, it's so exciting. Right. Continuing on in verse six. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph uh-oh, <laughs> yeah. and said, come to bed with me. But he refused With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. All right. We got to give him credit. He tried to rationalize he with her. Did. He really tried. But I want to talk about something here. Fight or flight. He tried to fight with her and kind of explain to it and bring her over to his side. He tried to be a witness to her. She didn't get it. There is always a choice when faced with temptation. You can fight it or you can flee. Joseph literally runs literally. from this wily woman. But it said didn't he help. ran. Remember this story. Sometimes the best thing you can do is run. God does not call everyone to fight every situation. It's okay to flee when you're tempted. And that's a principle. When tempted, feel free to flee. And I will say it doesn't help in this situation because he is going to get a consequence, even though it's a lie that's told. And we're going to read this in a second. However, there is a path that God has for him. And there is so much that he's going to learn through this trial that he goes through that it's all meant for good. It's worth it. Going back to what you brought out before, which is just part of the scripture, but you pointed it out and it's really true. What man intends for bad, God will use for good. And that is exactly what happens here. Exactly. All right. I want to talk about a symbolic comparison because in chapter 37, just one before the story of Judah and Tamar, we were again on Joseph and we talked about the contentious coat that created such a problem with his brothers. This one, we have a condemning cloak. So let's Mm. talk about that little symbolism there. You have a coat and a cloak, both a coat and a cloak serve the same purpose. They provide warmth, comfort, protection, and even status. 
both the coat and the cloak are stripped from Joseph. The contentious coat was stripped from him by brothers he loved and cared for. Mm. Out of envy, he had no choice. It was a test of faith. Would he despair or would he would his desire for God's will win? Did he did he despair over the situation? Oh, I'm sure. Or was his desire for God's will to win? Whatever you have, God. He bore the shame, the loss of favor with his father and family without complaint. He won the test of this faith in the stripping of this coat. But you don't think for a minute when he's at the bottom of that cistern that he was in despair. He probably was. But he, he didn't allow it to affect his faith. Right. He didn't, he still he didn't turn curse to God. God over it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Now, the cloak was stripped from him mm-hmm. by a woman in a position over him. So not anybody he loved, but certainly somebody he should have feared mm-hmm. out of lust, not out of envy as the one before, out of lust. He had a choice in this case. He could have succumbed to temptation, but he didn't. It was another test of discipline this time, not of desire, of discipline. He forwent the physical pleasure knowing that he would suffer even more injustice. So the first time is the first time he he suffers injustice. This time he's experienced. He goes, oh man, not again. Somebody else who has power over me. And then yet another test. He could have thought in his head, I don't want to go through that again. You know, I don't want to be hurt because of somebody else. Else, this isn't fair. He didn't. He took it on. He took it on. He was disciplined. He willed himself to suffer the future consequences. This story clearly sets Joseph apart compared to the stories of his brothers who have killed men for vengeance, slept with their father's wife, married Canaanite women, and sold him into slavery. Perhaps. This is why Jacob gave him the coat in the beginning, because he saw in something, in him, something different. Jacob, like God, saw in Joseph two key leadership characteristics, desire or faith and discipline. He saw in him a desire to make the right choice. I'm going to choose the rougher the, the rougher one. I know it's going to be bad for me, but I'm going to make the right choice. And a discipline to stay on the right path. Shout out to what you said before, Heather, to the choice to the, the printable we did about the choice to for good and evil. And choosing the right path is the right thing to do, just like you just said, regardless of, of whether or not there will be a consequence, because guess what you're about to see? The consequences turn out to be something that is really preparing him to be the man he was intended to be. To save his people. Right. To save his people. I can't tell you how many times over and over in the Bible we see characters who have choices like we do. And if they make the right choice on the right path, to stay on the right path, God blesses it. And Which it's is just a challenge for us. That's the favor that you were talking about a minute ago. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Continuing on, verse 16. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me? He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. 
Okay, when I have read this in the past, I have really just gone with what it said. He burned with anger and, and assuming that anger was towards Joseph. But I read a lot of commentaries on this and it changed my mind. So here right. is my take. It says that the master, the captain, burned with anger. Now, I concur with a lot of commentaries that say that Potiphar's anger was more frustration with the situation and anger at his wife than anger at Joseph. And here's why. The captain was a wife man. He had clearly recognized Joseph's abilities and trustworthiness in a very short time. Therefore, we can also assume he knew the character of his wily wife even better. But to call her out in this situation would have been publicly humiliating and her vengeance would have turned on him. So his anger was really that his wife was forcing him to act unjustly against Joseph. And in doing so, he would lose the service of of his excellent slave. The proof for this theory is in the punishment. And I didn't see this before. Potiphar does not kill him on the spot. Which would that normally have been something that would have happened? Exactly. Mm. The normal punishment for that day for such a crime as, you know, trying to have a sleep with your, attack your wife would have, especially for a slave, would have been death. Instead, Potiphar puts him in the king's prison, a place for political prisoners not foreign slaves, a poshier prison than perhaps <laughs> the slaves would have gotten. Additionally, next week in chapter 40, verse 3, we'll read that the prison is in the house of the captain of the guard. Remember where we started in this chapter. It said in uh, chapter 39, verse 1, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Potiphar put Joseph at his place of business. He just moved him from his house to where he works. This is a protection of sorts, even if it was jail. Mm -hmm. He's like, darn, what am I going to do? I love this kid. He's great. He's got such talent. I'm not going to kill him. Not because of my stupid wife. Yeah. I'm just going to. I'm going to put him in prison, but you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put him in my prison. <laughs> I, I was, I was a little skeptical when you first started going down this path, but you know, thank goodness for you, Susan, and all the research that you do into the context of what was going on at that time in the culture, because there's things that we would never know. Never know. Were we just reading this story? And that makes a lot of sense because gosh, even today, if your wife slept with someone, you'd be really mad at that someone, unless you knew this was your wife's MO and that was something yes. that she did a lot, apparently. The funny thing is, and here's the providence of God, what Potiphar's wife intended to harm, God is going to make good because guess what? Joseph is right where God wants him, where he will become acquainted with members of Pharaoh's court because they're going to get jail? put in that posh jail. It's like, who could think of this stuff? Only God could move this stuff around. Continuing on then in verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. I just love this. I love thinking about the end of this story. I have to wonder if Potiphar, the captain, the guard, and the warden of the prison were good friends. Of course they were. 
I wonder, and I picture, you know, Potiphar bringing him a, a bottle of brandy or something, whatever <laughs> he drinks. And out of concern for Joseph, he sits down and says, hey, you know, has a little chat with the warden, like, Go easy hey, on my a little, yeah, a little, oh, little heads up on the new guy you just got. Like, you know, you know, that thing that happened with my wife. Well, you know, the missus, <laughs> you know how she can be. It was, well, you know, a bit of drama in the house. And, and this guy, Joseph, he's the bomb. You're going to love him. He's a great guy. Like he's super smart. He can make your life easy here in the prison. And, uh, and then of course, God backed him up. And next week we're going to see that uh, Joseph's going to go back to his dreaming, but this time he's in a place where it's really going to pay off. Show notes. I really could put in the show notes, the, what, the narrative on women in the Bible. If you're mm-hmm. interested in that, I have a, a little kind of thing I've drawn out about these women that we mentioned. You absolutely should put okay, that in the show notes. Let's do that. We'll put that in the show notes. Because we are strong women and we love studying strong oh, we women. love those women. And the women of the Bible are awesome. Exactly. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome, welcome to, to the, the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.